Hey all, welcome to this special edition of the weekly knock activism wrap-up, where Squirrel just yells at the news by my lonesome. So Chris is up in San Francisco for the California Democratic Party Convention, and he'll tell us all about that next week, so look forward to that. Uh, don't forget, you can always head over to knock.la to see what we've been publishing. Also, the Ground Game LA homepage has gotten a facelift, so if you haven't checked that out, you should definitely head over there and do that. It's groundgamela.org. We're also on all your favorite social media sites, so you can check out at knock.la on Twitter and at Ground Game LA on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, we're also on Facebook, so you know, do that if you still use Facebook. Uh, so last week, I promised that I was going to hit the Senate. That plan has changed a little bit. Uh, I've got some updates on what's been moving on bills in both the Assembly and the Senate, uh, and a lot of them are really terrible. So let's go ahead and hop into that. Now, before I really get into the meat of this, I was able to get some audio from the Assembly viewing gallery from the week, and I wanted to play that real quick to give you a sense of just how everyone is feeling. Smithies, are they booing me? Uh, no, they're saying boo urns. Boo urns. Are you saying boo or boo urns? I was saying boo urns. Obviously, at the end, that was a lobbyist for the California Association of Realtors who were able to exert enough pressure to make this week's session disappointing, to say the least. Uh, so where should we begin? I guess we'll go ahead and stick to housing because that's sort of been at the forefront right now and our state is facing a massive housing crisis and eviction crisis. So it seems like we'll go ahead and get sad over that first. So first up is Senate Bill 529. Now, this bill was put up by Senator Elena Durazo and would have enshrined tenants' rights to organize in California law. If passed, landlords would no longer be able to retaliate against tenants for forming associations and would be compelled to negotiate with any associations their tenants formed. It also would have created a system where tenants could withhold rent if repairs were not being made. Not Just for a limited time. This wouldn't be as robust as the REAP program, the rent escrow account program that the city of LA runs, where basically for up to three months, instead of paying your landlord rent, you pay the rent into an escrow account, and the landlord doesn't get the money until the building is fixed. Now, this all sounds really, really cool, and that's precisely why it died in the Senate, even after being heavily amended. The rent strike protections were removed, because, I mean, why would you give tenants actual power to demand repairs and livable conditions? That's just crazy talk. So after being gutted, Many people expected that it would at least make it through the Senate. But alas, like many good ideas, it failed by just one vote. It earned 20 eyes, but it needed 21 to pass. Two Democrats, two Democrats, lacked the courage to even vote. They couldn't even say, no, we're voting no on this. They just chose to abstain and leave the tenants without needed protections by casting no vote at all. Like, literally killing this bill without taking a stand because... Well, there's an election coming up, and I guess they want to be on just the slightly side of terrible instead of, like, proving themselves to be totally terrible. Uh, I wouldn't expect to see the number of tenant unions or rent strikes decrease, though. These have proven to be incredibly popular and successful tactics, not just in L.A., but up and down the state. We've seen some rent strikes in Oakland. Obviously, the big ones out here in L.A. were the Burlington Unidos. Uh, we've, we're also looking at the Five Points tenants. There's a lot going on where tenants are organizing even without these protections, but it's incredibly disappointing that the state Senate, when they had a chance to say, hey, it's good for tenants to build solidarity, it's good for tenants to have some voice in the way that their building is run and managed, and whether or not they're going to be subjected to ridiculous rent increases, and was like, no, that's a terrible idea, we're not going to do that. You know, to re-up a statistics, I'm, I'm really liking this one. You know, 60% of the people in our state house are landlords, so it's pretty easy to see where their class interests lie. 
let's go ahead and move on to our next disappointment. So Assembly Bill 1481 would have stopped no-cause evictions in California. So a no-cause eviction is when your landlord just decides they want you out. And they don't just want to like try and push you out with increased rent. They just like show up and say, hey, you've got 60, 90 days, GTFO, kick rocks, I don't care where you're going. Now again, this bill was heavily amended and watered down to basically be a relocation fee bill. So landlords could still evict you for whatever reason, but they couldn't do it for free. Instead, they would have to pay you either two or three months rent, depending on how long you'd been in the building. Sounds like a good idea, until you realize that tenants with really cheap rent would have an impossible time finding a new place to live. Even with three months rent, deposits, first and last months, and moving costs would add up really quickly and just swamp whatever extra money you got out of basically being bought out of your unit against your will. Also, they added a sundown provision, which would have automatically repealed the law in 2030 because I'm sure, you know, the landlords would no longer see any reason to evict anyone after 2030. Like, they'd just give up on the tactic. They'd just be like, oh, you know what? Everyone can stay. It's fine. Uh, 1481 did not even come up for a vote this week, which is even more frustrating about it. Like, no one even was able to voice their support or opposition to it. They just effectively left it lying on the assembly floor, effectively killing it for the session. Uh, But hey, on the bright side, we can look forward to being disappointed again next year uh, when another bill like 1481 goes up, only to have the landlord's lobby basically beat it back into submission. Now, we do have a sort of, kind of, but not really victory to meekly celebrate. AB 1481 aims to cap rent increases in California to annual inflation plus 5%. Now, the inflation rate in California is like 2 to 3%. So you're looking at, you know, anywhere between 7 and 8% increases year over year. Uh, it also would cap, give a hard cap of 10%. So you couldn't see like a 20% rent increase. The most you could ever see, no matter how big inflation was, is 10%. It also extends some protections to affordable housing covenants, which are covenants entered into by landlords who guarantee affordable housing in exchange for tax subsidies and all sorts of goodies from the government. Uh, These have begun expiring because a lot of them came online in the late 80s and early 90s, so landlords don't have to re-up the affordable housing. They can try and sell it to another developer, another landlord. This bill would at least give local governments a chance to come in and buy those properties before they go to market or before they stop being affordable altogether. So at least there's a chance to start building some public housing stock in the state of California because we don't have a really robust system for for public housing. And this doesn't even touch on the whole Section 8 system, uh, which I'm not going to get into this week. There is a Senate bill that deals with that, but I'm, I'm going to stick to these bills for right now. But remember, no good idea makes it through the assembly in one piece. So at the insistence of the California Realtors Association, who was, if you remember, the main opposition to Prop 10, uh, spending millions of dollars running a just absolute disinformation campaign to scare people away from voting for rent control because we don't actually want anyone to be able to afford to live in the state, uh, the bill was capped at three years. So that means that when these rent caps go into effect, you can only count on those protections for three years till 2023. Again, it doesn't make any sense as to why that would be effective or why landlords wouldn't just wait the three years and then jack up rent even more. I mean, unless the California Assembly thinks that landlords are like goldfish and after three years will just forget that they can raise the rent 20 or 30 or 50 or 200 percent, which they're doing now. 
So anyways, the, the California's landlord lobby is right now batting a thousand, while our legislators are being very clear about where their interests lie and whose side they're on. And it's, it's not the side of tenants. It's not the side of people like you and me who are not paying to build equity year over year, people who are seeing 60, 70, maybe 80% of your income going to pay ever-increasing rents and wondering, huh, if it goes up a little bit more, where am I going to live? Because there's no cheaper places left. Now, just to mention it for good measure, I know I've talked a little bit about AB 36 before, and AB 36 would basically repeal Costa Hawkins and allow local rent control. Uh, it is still cooling its heels in the Real Rules Committee. So before it can even get to the floor for an up or down vote, it has to make it through the Rules Committee, and it's just sitting there waiting and will probably be dead for the session uh, because it doesn't look like it's going to pass out and get to a floor vote anytime soon. Uh, maybe there's a good reason for this. Uh, maybe it egregiously violates some silly esoteric law in California legislative rules, or maybe because our legislators are wealthy cowards who can be controlled by the purse strings of wealthy interest groups. It's a, it seems like a 50-50 toss-up to me. Maybe, maybe you've got some better ideas there. Now, our eviction crisis is a housing crisis. High rents and greedy landlords are driving people out of LA and onto the streets. The last time I was in SF, and this is kind of a, a weird story, but I found this cute little single-family home neighborhood, and it, you know, nice trees and nice little like standalone houses, very like very full house-looking sort of houses, uh, and it had this big median park that stretched for the better part of a block, and it had this jungle gym that was clearly designed by like some absolutely insane AI. It was nothing that a child would like, but something that a tech bro would look at and think, yeah, this is the amorphous mass of steel that I would want to play on as a kid, or at least that's what I tell myself now. Uh, I grabbed a coffee at a, a nice, cute, and very overpriced coffee shop and kind of sat in the park and killed a couple hours reading, the, reading a book. And what I noticed as I sat there and kind of took a soft survey of the neighborhood is I didn't see a single kid, not a single one in the neighborhood that was literally built for families. The only people in the park looked to be my age, way more well-heeled than I am, and a few of them had dogs. Like, that was the closest to children was wealthy tech investors with dogs who play in a park that's a bad facsimile of what a jungle gym is. It was dystopian and kind of sad. And what really bothered me about it is this is the future that LA is building. Like this is why LAUSD is seeing fewer enrollments every year. As the second largest city in the nation, we'll see these pressures before smaller communities. And it's becoming apparent that for all their blustering about working families, our representatives in Sacramento have no idea what they're talking about. How can you build a city for families when you need to earn well into six figures to afford children and the median wage in LA is less than $30,000? This math is like obvious to everyone except for the people who are literally supposed to fix it. Again, having a state house that is made up of incredibly wealthy people is a terrible, terrible way to solve the problems that affect most of us. But don't worry, we're going to leave housing behind and instead we're going to get mad about police reform. Last year, after SB 1421 passed, it seemed like California might finally be getting serious about reining in police violence. 1421 made misconduct and use of force records public so people could actually see who the violent cops are and how many times they've been violent. The hope was that the police would self-regulate, at least to an extent, like fearing being put on the stand and having their history of violence trotted out before them by defense attorneys, fear of being revealed to be liars and putting false information in arrest reports. This should hopefully, like, I don't know, shame the police, assuming the police are capable of shame. So on the heels of this, enter AB 392. 
This was a bill to revamp the use of deadly force guidelines across the state. Originally, the bill would have required an actual threat to an officer or another person before deadly force would be legal. As things stand now in law, officers can use deadly force as long as they're trying to effect an arrest. So anytime a cop is trying to do something, they can pretty much shoot you dead and that will be legal or at least really hard to prosecute. 392 had the support of Black Lives Matter and the staunch opposition of the police union. So, like, on face, we know it's a good idea. Just seeing who supports it and who doesn't, we're like, oh, yeah, this is a good idea. And since it was a good idea, the assembly could just not let it stand. Uh, The police union swept in and negotiated really hard to get it watered down, and ultimately they won. 392 passed by a unanimous vote of 66 to 0, which is... Pretty kind of pretty cool, at least for people to be like, oh yeah, on paper I support police reform, but the severely watered down language makes it not very palatable. The version that has made it through the assembly only requires that an officer reasonably believe that there is a threat, not that there is a threat, not that the officer has to prove being threatened, only that the officer could believe that there's a threat. So, in light of this, Black Lives Matter has withdrawn support of the bill, and the cop unions are okay with it. So that's a pretty good sign that this bill is the wrong move. Both sides of the aisle celebrated this scare quotes victory, and a few of them were so excited that they changed the original vote from no to I after the session ended. By the way, did you know that reps can just change their vote after the fact? Because they can do that at pretty much every level of government, from state houses to the federal Congress. Like, they can vote one way on the floor and then come back a couple hours and be like, oh, I meant to vote the other way. Yeah, just go ahead and switch that for me. So uh, that seems to defeat the entire point of the vote, but I digress. You know, when wealthy people who got their wealth by cheating are allowed to write the rules, they're obviously going to write rules that allow them to cheat. Uh, It just kind of makes sense. Uh, so let's let's bring this home. So Campaign Zero, a group dedicated to ending police violence across the country, released scorecards for the 100 biggest police departments in California yesterday. LAPD earned an F, which surprises literally no one who's paying attention. Since 2012, 520 people have been killed by police in LA. This includes LAPD, the LA County Sheriff's Office, and local cops in cities like Inglewood and Torrance. So far, one, yes, one officer has been charged in an on-duty shooting by Jackie Lacey's office. One. And it was years ago. It was like the shooting happened like six years ago. It took them forever to even decide that they want to try and take this person to trial. They still haven't taken him to trial. But for most officers, the penalty for killing someone while on duty is simply a paid vacation. Be on the lookout for more deadly outbreaks of the passive voice as police guns inexplicably fire on their own and bullets just happen to occupy the same space as a human body. But my question of the day is, under the new 392, would the shooting of Tamir Rice be illegal? Sadly, we probably won't have to wait long to find out because, you know, cops like shooting people. So I don't want to end things on a completely terrible note. There is one bill that made it out of the assembly that deserves some praise. AB5 takes aim at the gig economy, requiring employers to end freelance employment. Former freelancers would have to become either full or part-time employees. There has been some pushback from media outlets complaining that this would effectively end freelance journalism in California. And, like, honestly, as somebody who's worked in media for my whole career, I really have yet to meet the person who would rather be a freelancer with the added time and expense of handling all their own payroll taxes and quarterly tax payments, plus the fun of carrying their own health insurance, all bundled up in the absolutely fun time of not having steady paychecks. But I guess that unicorn could exist. Like, unicorns could theoretically exist. I just have never met one. So, 
I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, so this has been a short one, and that's really all I got in me for yelling at the news this week. If you're pretty nonplussed about this week and what went down in Sacramento, just remember, we've got an election coming up in 2020. Every person in the California Assembly and like a third of the California State Senate will be up for re-election. Not to mention the very, you know, ignored presidential contest. That'll also be happening, but who cares about that? Remember, these people have names, and you can vote them out. So to end this sort of like short episode this week, onward and upward with my Kick the Bums Out 2020 campaign. Thank you all very much. Never lose your sense of outrage. Thirty and more. Thirty and more. Thirty and more. Thirty and more.